Hello and welcome. This is Emphasis Added, a podcast by the Houston Law Review, where we highlight legal issues, prominent lawyers, and obscure blue book rules. We are your hosts, Adri Langemeyer and Robert Cunningham. A special thanks to our sponsor, Gibson Dunn, a premier full-service international law firm with nearly 1,400 lawyers and 20 offices. Gibson Dunn recognizes that a law firm is, at its heart, a collection of individual attorneys, so they strive to hire the highest quality law students and attorneys, professionally and personally, and grant them the autonomy in shaping their own career path. Gibson Dunn attorneys bring a unique, diverse perspective to the firm's community, and the firm values a culture of respect and professionalism that promotes a dialogue with room for all viewpoints. Visit www.gibsondunn.com to learn more about Gibson Dunn's summer associate program and hiring opportunities. Austin Terman is a third-year student at the University of Houston Law Center and managing editor of the Houston Law Review. Austin summarized some of the major changes in the 20th edition of the Blue Book, shared his writing tips and tricks, and general advice for law students. Austin, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. So I just said your name, but tell us your name and tell us what you do for the Houston Law Review. Well, uh, my name's Austin Terman, and I'm the managing editor for Board 58. Okay, and what does that mean to be the managing editor? Well, uh, I my, my main job, I guess, would be to support our wonderful editor-in-chief in supervising the article editing pipeline. So all the articles that come in, how they get edited, making sure everything gets turned in on time yeah. and uh, meets our, our standards. Okay, so you're making sure uh, everything gets done that needs to get done <laughs> exactly. pretty much. That's a pretty big job. Um, so briefly tell us, why was it important for you to join the Houston Law Review and how has your membership on the Law Review benefited you? So on the the outset, joining Houston Law Review, uh, you know, a, a big part about it is the, you know, it is something that looks good on a resume. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but once I, I joined Law Review, I realized that there are huge components of it that really emphasize responsibility, uh, personal accountability, time management, uh, an eye for detail. I honestly don't think I would have improved so much in those qualities without having those those qualities stressed uh, working for the law review. Right. And I want to dig into that just a little bit because I know for me coming into law school, I didn't know what law reviews were or what journals were or why they were important. Um, so when you say like it's good for the resume and you mention a couple of things that are good about it, what is it that firms are are expecting when they see someone as part of a journal or part of the law review? What are some of the qualities um, that they know that you'll have with that membership? Well, it's a lot of the qualities that uh, I I just spoke about. I mean, uh, time management is a huge one, the ability to kind of juggle class and uh, working for a journal because it it really is a lot of work, um, but it's super rewarding. the other thing is like an eye for detail. Uh, you know, now I've gotten to the point where I can catch italicized commas just by looking and just be like, that comma looks a little weird to me. So, um, and uh, really the the big one I think is is um, personal accountability. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the work you do on Law Review, um, you know, it's so much, like, so many moving pieces that mm-hmm. someone doesn't directly look at every single thing you write or highlight or stuff like that, at least to the, the level of detail that's, that's possible. So, um, you know, turning in your work on time mm-hmm. um, and, and being proud of the work product that you do turn in, yeah. uh, you know, becomes a personal responsibility. And, right. uh, you know, I, I think that 
that's something that firms expect out of uh, law review members and, and journal members specific or uh, in general. Um, but uh, you know, I I think that's a, a big part of it. Yeah, and I would definitely echo all of those sentiments and can see now that I've had two summers of clerkship, um, how the skills I've learned and developed in law review really actually do apply to skills you need as a as a young attorney. Um, well, what we're here today for is the blue book, which is kind of the Rosetta Stone for legal writing is what I'm calling it. Um, this is our guidebook for all of our editing and for all the formatting of legal writing. And they released a major revision this year, the 2020 Blue Book. And you're here today to tell us um, what some of the main changes are that you have noticed. So there are, there are three main areas that I, I think are, are really important to highlight. The, the first one uh, is the order of authorities. I think that's Rule 1.5. Um, just having to remember it off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 20th. Uh, version of the or the 20th edition of the blue book it used to be that order of authorities had to be structured you know constitutions statutes cases there, there was a, a very particular way that you had to structure footnotes mm-hmm. um, in in law review uh, pieces and these authorities had to be structured in that very particular way mm-hmm. with the 21st edition they've removed that very strict you know category requirement right. that you know constitutions always have to come before cases for instance mm-hmm. um, now it's it's more structured in terms of of a logical order um, and you know we that gives us a tremendous amount of flexibility and, and furthermore just authors a tremendous amount of flexibility in structuring their citations to kind of reflect the point that they're making okay so, and I, and I want to ask a little bit more about that because typical to the legal world, a logical manner could have a lot of different interpretations depending on the reviewer. So how are um, writers and reviewers going to determine what a logical manner is? Is that left up to the author? Does it depend on the, the piece? Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So this is the, the beauty of this new uh, rule is that it's, it's really left up to the author. Um, it's, it's based on relevance. So if you make a, a, what we call an above-the-line assertion, so you know, in the main, main text, uh, the author has the chance to structure citations and, and put the ones they, they believe are most relevant to support mm-hmm. that assertion or, or to uh, you know, provide background for that assertion. And they can put those first, so whenever a reader is like, I'm kind of curious where they're getting that from, they can see exactly what the author wants to place emphasis on uh, when you have a string cite, meaning you have more than one citation. Yeah, uh, that makes so much more sense than the way (laughs) that it was before. So I'm sure we'll love having that. Okay, and so you mentioned there were two other things that were kind of big ticket items. Yes, one that is of uh, personal significance to me is Rule Twelve Point Five B, and this is it, uh, the ability to cite online versions of state statutes. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it's it's personal to me because I, I had to cite a lot of those, and in the twentieth edition, uh, it said that you could only if a state only put their statutes online you could use that uh, official state website to cite, um, you know, state statutes. In the new blue book, it's now based on, uh, it it doesn't require that they only be online. So now you have the flexibility that because uh, state statute uh, 
you know, books, uh, entire volumes, they're kind of hard to find because they're really expensive. Right. People really don't want to buy those books and constantly have to keep them updated. So uh, a lot of libraries don't carry them anymore. Mm -hmm. And so now you can just go straight to the website, an official state website, where there is a code you're looking for and be able to pull directly from that. And it is so amazing to me <laughs> that you, you, you I, yeah I totally agree because I remember going to the library as a 2L and looking for these state statutes and like the most recent copies they had were like 1987 exactly. or something like that so it's shocking to me that they've just now made this change but like you I'm just glad that they've done it so exactly. no complaints here Okay, and there was one more major change you were going to tell us about. The other one is finally, finally, uh, combining table T6 uh, and T13.2. Now, those two tables used to be separated into abbreviations for case names and abbreviations for periodical titles. Mm. Uh, and now they've combined them into one big table under T6 where it's, an, it's abbreviations for everything. Okay. And so now it's a lot it's a lot easier to scan footnotes and see a word that I'm like, I know that it needs to be abbreviated. Mm -hmm. And now that it's all in one place, I don't have to get confused between like, oh, wait, that's a periodical abbreviation, not a case name or, right. or vice versa. So that's a huge quality of life update. It's yes. one place, all the abbreviations, uh, though, you know, you know, rest in peace, table T13.2. <laughs> yeah. And that just seems, again, like just a, a logical way to make the blue book more accessible and easier to use. Absolutely. So overall, that seems like what the major goal was here, to simplify um, and just make the, the Blue Book easier. Well, yeah, and I, I think one of, one of the things that the Blue Book is kind of more towards uh, leaning towards, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that they're going to expand this in the future, is really kind of going into the digital age and mm -hmm. uh, you know looking at online sources not as kind of these like, well, if you can't find a print source, you can you can seek this meager right. online source. Uh, but really showing that online sources can be just as uh, as fruitful and, and um, just as good as, as print sources. And I think that's a really great change, especially during these troubling times. Absolutely. And it is um, such a timely change for them to make the, the editors, whoever they may be, of the Blue Book, um, as we've seen this year, having to work from home, um, especially as a law review functioning from home and having students that need to maybe access physical books at libraries that aren't open. Exactly. Um, and so it does, it just makes so much more sense to kind of bring us into the 21st century in this way. Oh, yeah. Um, so I want to shift a little bit because as the managing editor of the law review, uh, you're someone that I um, think is just a great writer generally and probably has some great writing tips. Um, and you've obviously probably seen a lot of writing mistakes. Um, yes, so what are some of the big writing mistakes that you see in scholarly articles? And then do you have any tips on how to avoid them? So this is, uh, in terms of scholarly articles, I tend to view anything that I would say is a, is a mistake is like you know, pure grammar problems. And, and those are just, you know, you have to go on, you know, grammarly.com or something like that and just view like how to use certain, uh, you know, where comma should be placed, mm -hmm. uh, subject verb agreement, things like that. Um, in terms of writing style, the one thing that I, I always, or I, I'm not a big fan of is not using topic sentences in mm -hmm. paragraphs. I think it is so critical um, in, in especially legal writing that you begin every paragraph with a sentence explaining what you're going to be discussing in that paragraph mm -hmm. because, you know, you're, you're discussing complicated issues. You have to relate those issues uh, to other uh, things you're discussing in your piece. So I, I, 
I think the use of topic sentences is super important. Um, the other thing, and this is more below the line, but mm-hmm. um, not making a pretty general assertion and then supporting it with like 50 sources. Mm. Uh, I do think that like, just as a reviewer, that can get a little uh, cumbersome. Right. Um, but as, as just a viewer, I, I feel like when, when you include a lot more sources than are ne- necessary to support an assertion, mm-hmm. it kind of looks like you're, you're just trying to fill space. Right. And you're trying to make the, the actual like, look of your piece more official and more mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, bound in fact than it necessarily needs to be or should be. But. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of a, a phrase that I was told back in college, uh, the, the KISS acronym, keep it simple, sweetie, which is uh, quite silly, but really uh, makes sense and is helpful for so many forms of writing. And I think uh, both of those things that you mentioned get to that point, which is you want to keep it simple for the reader. Exactly. And if the reader is coming from a, whether it's a person that knows what the topic is or doesn't know anything at all, you want them to be able to understand the information you're trying to convey. And I think both of those two tips um, help to do that. So thanks for sharing some of that. Definitely. Um, okay, so some questions that we like to ask all of our guests. First, outside of your duties on the Law Review, because I know that Law Review has its own opinions about this, but are you pro-Oxford comma or not? I am definitely pro-Oxford comma, and uh, anyone can fight me on this, but uh, I, I think the Oxford comma uh, provides clarity. Mm-hmm. I think it's consistent uh, with, you know, just kind of grammar usage. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting example that I was taught in, uh, in, you know, high school was that, okay, you know, if depending on the way you write a sentence, without the Oxford comma, it can be confusing, like, I love my parents, Lady Gaga and Humpty Dumpty. It's right. like without uh, a comma after Lady Gaga, it makes it sound like your parents are Lady Gaga and, right. and Humpty Dumpty. So like in, in order to fix that kind of that problem, you need to rewrite the sentence uh, to, to include my parents at the end. And it's like, well, you could just add an Oxford comma and, uh, and solve that uh, nice and easy. I, I'm very pro-Oxford comma. <laughs> okay. We might have to discuss this more at length <laughs> off the air. Um, And then our last question for you today, Austin, is do you have any advice for students that are hoping to eventually join the Houston Law Review or any other scholarly journal? So for 1Ls wanting to be uh, on a journal, I think obviously, you know, really study hard. Uh, The the best way that you can get on to the Houston Law Review or any journal is just by uh, doing well academically, uh, Mm -hmm. taking your classes seriously, getting interested in your subjects. And, uh, and, and really taking 1L seriously. Um, you know, that's just the, the broad general advice. Uh, and then two, you know, realize why you want to be on a journal because it, it's one thing to, to get onto a journal and to, to qualify for one, but the work involved is, is not something for everyone. You know, mm-hmm. you, may, you may be happier being on and devoting your full time and effort onto, you know, uh, one of our amazing trial ad teams or mock or, uh, right. moot court. And, uh, you know, that's something that you have to make that you have to make that decision, not necessarily now because it's fall of, you know, first semester and, right. and everything like that. But as the, the time comes, you know, thinking about like what you actually want to get out of your law school experience, what you actually want to focus your time on, um, you know, really counts. And we do see that in our in, in members is that when somebody's, you know, they join Law Review, not necessarily because they, they really wanted to be part of this this process and to, to publish, mm-hmm. um, you know, make things, make a, a final product really great. 
but they they wanted to do it simply because uh, they'd heard it was it was prestigious mm-hmm. and um, you know that that's not necessarily the best motivation right and I think you point out something really important there which is that um, when you get to law school you may have people tell you like you have to do mm-hmm. journal you have to do law review this is what firms expect and I know we talked a little bit about that at the beginning um, but the important thing is that you do something absolutely. And um, yeah, whether that's going to be law review, which we'd love to have you, uh, one L's out there. But if it's something else, that's okay too, because you're still showing uh, the skills that you need to be a successful attorney in the future. Absolutely. And and I'll be the first one to say that uh, journal or, or law review specifically, uh, it, there, you don't have to do these things. It is not required. It does not make or break your career. And to those who, who may try to get on, on law review through the ride-on, uh, and and ultimately may not be successful. That is not the end all be all, mm-hmm. and that that it does not reflect on your your character, your intelligence, um, and and you know I think that's something really important that a, a lot of one else going into law school they think their entire identity is wrapped in right. to getting you know the these kind of accolades, and and that's not true. And mm-hmm. so I you know there there are plenty of people who are not on law review or journal that have. <laughs> made great strides in, in other areas. So, like, uh, you know, I'm very, very, uh, you know, I, I find that really, really important. Yeah, and I uh, think that's actually a great encouragement for us to wrap up on. Um, so, Austin, thank you so much for chatting with us today on our first mini episode. <laughs> and, um, yeah, best of luck on your 3L year. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Emphasis Added is a podcast by the Houston Law Review. Production is possible because of generous support from the Houston Law Review Alumni Association. If you have thoughts on today's episode or suggestions for a future episode, email us at emphasisadded at houstonlawreview.org. Follow the Houston Law Review on Twitter and Instagram at HoustonLRev or find us on Facebook under the name Houston Law Review. 